Musician Elvis Castillo has released a total of 24 studio albums, at least as of this recording. If we were to cut those albums right in half, at exactly the middle would be the 12th album, Spike, released in 1989. While he was certainly a star before 1989, Elvis Castillo's song from Spike called Veronica was a team-up with Paul McCartney that turned out to be, at the time, Elvis's biggest single in the U.S. Of course, that was decades ago, way back when MTV used to actually play music videos. In fact, Elvis's video for Veronica was the first music video directed by the Australian director John Hillcote. It was hardly his last. John would go on to direct music videos for Bush, Placebo, Him, Depeche Mode, Muse, Bob Dylan, Johnny Cash, and plenty more stars. In 2011, John was given the reins on a budget of about $26 million to bring Lawless to the big screen. Despite what Hollywood might consider a meager budget, Lawless had an all-star cast consisting of Shia LaBeouf, Tom Hardy, Jason Clark, Jessica Chastain, Mia Wasikowski, Guy Pierce, Dane DeHaan, and Gary Oldman, just to name a few. The film Lawless was released the next year, 2012, and while $26 million is a lot of money to you and I, as far as Hollywood is concerned, it's not really a massive budget. So anytime a movie like that is able to attract such an all-star cast, that means one thing. It wasn't really the money that attracted them, it was the story that attracted them. In this case, the story from Lawless is based on the book by Matt Bondurant called The Wettest County in the World. In his book, Matt tells the story of his own family during Prohibition. His grandfather Jack, who's portrayed on screen by Shia LaBeouf, and his two granduncles, Forrest, as played by Tom Hardy in the movie, and Howard, who's played by Jason Clark. Unfortunately, for those of us wanting to know how much of the movie Lawless was truth, so much of what happened with illegal moonshining in Virginia during Prohibition just isn't documented, and for good reason. So this week, I decided to do something a little different here on the show. I recently had the chance to sit down and chat with Jack's grandson and the man who wrote the book that the movie is based on, Matt Bondurant. So let's dig into how much of Lawless is true. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. It's time for Two Truths and a Lie. Listen closely for the two truths scattered throughout the episode. Then, by a process of elimination, you'll know which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. Okay, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Forrest Bondurant did survive having his throat cut. Number two, Charlie Rakes was not actually from Chicago. Number three, Jack Bondurant was not shot in the big shootout at the end of the movie. Before we get back to the show, I want to say thank you to Riley Lewis Morris for becoming a patron of the show and recommending that we cover Lawless. This whole episode is because of Riley, so thanks so much for your support, Riley. I had a blast chatting with Matt and learning more about the true story behind the movie, and I hope you will too. So without further ado, let's jump into the interview as we compare history with Hollywood's version of Lawless. This week, I'm super excited to be joined by Matt Bondurant. Matt is the author of The Wettest County in the World, the book that was adapted into the movie Lawless and tells the story of his grandfather, Jack Bondurant, as well as his two granduncles, Forrest and Howard. 
Thanks so much for your time, Matt. Sure, no problem. Glad to be here. Now, before we start to chat about Lawless, I actually want to ask you about your last name because I might have already mispronounced it. I know in the movie they actually pronounce it a few different ways. Bondurant, <laughs> Bondurant, Bondurant. <laughs> How do you pronounce your last name? We say Bondurant. Bondurant? But, yeah, but, but a lot of people in Franklin County um, say Bondurant. They sort of uh, – they kind of allied the last a little quicker, Bondurant. Um, and so it's a little confusing because my my father left Franklin County um, as a, uh, when he joined the Navy. And so the kind of in northern Virginia, the northern pronunciation is Bondurant, but down in Franklin County they say Bondurant. And then the movie, of course, they had, you know, you have a bunch of English and Australian people trying to say that. So that's what happens. <laughs> <laughs> so in a way, they're kind of – some of them are correct and some of them are not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. All right. So with that clarified, I want to talk about the, the title of the book because in the beginning, uh, Shia LaBeouf, who plays Jack, your grandfather, uh, has a voiceover that mentions Franklin County is known as the wettest county in the world, which is also the title of your book. So was that something that was actually that Franklin County was actually known for back then, or was that something the filmmakers were kind of working in to add in the title of your book? No, it, that that was a that was a name um, or a title that was given to the county. The, the first known reference that I could find to it was from the writer Sherwood Anderson, who plays a pretty big role in the book. Um, he's not in the movie at all, but in the book he's a pretty big role, and, and he wrote an article. Um, for a magazine and when he was sort of investigating the great moonshine conspiracy, uh, Franklin County moonshine conspiracy of 1935, which, um, and he wrote, you know, in, in the sentence, he says, you know, where they're producing more alcohol than anyplace else, the wettest County in the world is Franklin County, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of, um, that, that stuck. And, um, it's been, known, Franklin County has been known, as the, the the wettest county in America for for a long time, you know, um, and uh, it, it's it's a kind of a dubious distinction, I guess, but it's a it's it's something that pretty well known in that part of the, especially that part of the state, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So the movie actually takes place in 1931. Is that correct? I mean, I saw the text on screen that mentioned that. Is that? basically the kind of the right time frame for the events or is the i know a lot of times in movies the time frame they change that or is that pretty accurate it's yeah it's slightly it's slightly adjusted um for example the the incidents at maggoty creek bridge where my grandfather and his brothers uh get shot you know which is this climax of the mm-hmm. film that was december of 1930 but it's right around there, and, and you know, and in, in, in within the book too, um, you know, because it's a it's a fictionalization of the true story. I I, I um, compressed some events, you know, a little bit and um, adjusted some things, trying to kind of um, put the narrative together in a kind of a more seamless fashion. But um, but it's basically very close. The other thing I'll say from the onset is there's there, a lot of the incidents. Um, except for things like the shooting, because that was something that was reported, obviously, in court transcripts and in the newspaper. Um, everything else, you know, relatively unrecorded, you know, hard to find in, in terms of specific dates or times and things like that. So there was, um, which is great for, for me as a novelist, there's a lot of flexibility, you know, <laughs> so I can uh, work it in. But um, no, I, th- I think that the film does a pretty good job. The, the book the book actually takes place over a, a number of years. Um, it goes all the way to 1935. And, 
it even has some some shots. Well, in the very beginning of the movie, there were the young boys. It's like nineteen seventeen. That that in the hog pen, you know, that's that starts off like the book does. So it's like the young the, the brothers are young, and then it leaps forward to when they're older. Um, and the book does that mostly. Um, there's a few other moments that are kind of skipped, but uh, but yeah, you know, basically the timing time period is 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 right there. Well, I like that you mentioned that a lot of it was undocumented because that kind of leads right into my next question, which is about the characters. And I know there's a lot of characters that we know are real, um, like your your ancestors, as well as uh, like Floyd Banner, and they mentioned Al Capone. But then you have some kind of secondary characters, like uh, I know the the guy that Jack and or even Cricket, you know that Jack and Cricket take the moonshine to Gummy Walsh, and kind of an associated Floyd Banner. Couldn't find anything about that. Doesn't necessarily mean that he doesn't exist. I just couldn't find any in the research I was doing kind of before this. But what do you think about the characters? Were there a lot of them that were made up for the movie, or were there some of them that they were actual we just didn't know about that you uncovered in your research? Well, people like Gummy Walsh, for example, he's he is a kind of a a made up or a, um, a composite character, maybe, mm-hmm. and 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 that that's that's a guy that's a character that I created um, to kind of give somebody to work with Jack and things like that. And the cricket the cricket pate is is a, again also a kind of a composite. There was a there was a guy named Cricket back then, and he was very handy with machines. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what his last name was and his, his relationship with the Bondurants in general is kind of un, un, really unknown. It's not really sure how, uh, if, you know, him and Jack were best buddies or anything like that, that that's, um, that's something again, I, I, I sort of added in, um, the, the Jessica Chastain character, for example, that that is a that is a um, a character that uh, Maggie's a real person. Um, you know, ended up with my granduncle Forrest. They were together for years and actually secretly married at some point. And um, so she's a real person. And as you mentioned, like the Floyd Banner, who uh, is is based he's based on a on a another. Um, sort of more local um, kingpin, let's say, moonshine kingpin that operated in West Virginia and Virginia um, with, with the last name of Floyd. The last name, um, So th- what the movie guys did is they kind of adjusted those slightly. They also, they, they made Floyd Banner like more clearly, like from Chicago, you know, this kind of city thing. Um, and the same goes for Charlie Riggs. Probably the biggest transformation that the movie made from my book. Uh, and because in the book, uh, I, I tried to stay as close to the real person, Charlie Rakes, as we know him. And Charlie Rakes was a Franklin County local. Hmm. I mean, he, he was, he was, you know, sheriff, but he was, he was known. They all knew each other, these guys, which is one of the reasons why I made it really curious for me because the historical record is clear that, uh, you know, in December, 1930, in that bridge, Charlie Rakes really wanted to kill all those brothers. And, uh, we're not, you know, and he said some things, some which, which are recorded in court transcripts, which are in the book and in the in the film. Um, but it wasn't like he was from Chicago and didn't know them before. He he knew them. It sounds like almost all their life. If he was local, wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't know, we don't know the extent of it, but it's most likely they have known each other because they're both from this you know relatively small area. And um, and I know. Um, 
but like he he like threatened him and you know he's he had lines like i thought you bought around hard-boiled son of a bitches like that's in the court transcripts and then that you know they put that into the the film and i and i early on in the discussions with john hillcote um nick cave they um clearly wanted to the director and screenwriter that, that they wanted to kind of accentuate the um you know the conflict between uh uh charlie rakes and the brothers and by making him an outsider kind of a city person and that kind of thing just kind of exacerbates makes the just makes the distinction between them and he's more a much more clear villain because the, the real charlie rakes is not a real clear villain and it's really you know unusual and i devote you know a fair amount of time to him um in, in, in the book, trying to kind of come to an understanding, um, a, a possible understanding, um, a plausible understanding of why he might, you know, come to have uh, developed this great animosity to a degree that he wanted to to basically shoot them all down, you know, in, in, in almost basically in cold blood. You know? Wow. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. EarnIn is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, EarnIn. So it, what about the other characters as far as their personality? Do you think the movie did a pretty good job of kind of portraying the personalities of, uh, well, not only the brothers, but also it sounds like they made some changes with Charlie, but the other characters as well. Yeah. Um, but they, they, they stuck pretty close to the book other than, other than Charlie rakes, they, they stuck pretty close to the book. And, um, the thing, but the thing about the book, um, the, for example, the, the, the personality, somebody like Howard, the brother Howard, is um there you know he has some surviving relatives um but to to nobody that could tell us what howard was like in 1930 you know and um same this goes for all the brothers and so it was difficult to kind of formulate you know i had to go off of some things that i knew about them that they had done and um a lot of the character formation was done from these court transcripts where you know i heard uh, you get to hear Forrest, for example, say various things. You know, he says to one of the sheriff's deputies in court transcripts, he says, "We know somebody's going to die unless you let us across this bridge." Stuff like that. So these kind of threats, you know. Um, so that, so what I did is I took something like that, plus the fact that he was shot and survived. He had his throat cut, survived. He had a load of lumber dropped on him, and he survived. All these things, 
And, um, and also because he was clearly the, the leader of the group, th- I took like those elements and created a personality from that. You know what I mean? Um, and the same goes with Howard, you know, and, you know, Howard, Howard, for example, one of the sort of great telling details in the court transcripts that I found about Howard was that we know, um, he showed up at that shooting, uh, late and, and, and they said he was apparently drunk. You know, so here we have the older brother, you know, the oldest brother of the family and at this pivotal moment, he shows up late and he's drunk, you know, so, so he's the guy that's drunk and shows up late, you know, and, and that develops his character to some degree. And, and, and Jack, you know, Jack was a little bit different because Jack was my grandfather and I knew him, um, but I didn't know him as an 18 year old boy. So I kind of had to go off of what I could know. It's my dad and everything like that. And, um. So it's a tricky thing, and and I think that the that the film adaptation for the most part was was you know stuck to um, my interpretations or cr- character sort of creations. Maggie, for example, to- basically a total mystery, um, n- no real record of her at all, and. Um, so I, you know, I was I was sort of free to. Uh, we know that she moved into that store with them and and was working that store with them for a long time. Uh, apparently, she was kind of quiet or something like that. But there's really so little to go off of that. Um, so, um, yeah, you know, in, in the book, what one of the things I did in the book, which didn't make it into the film, was that the the, the author Sherwood Anderson, um, his final novel, he wrote this book, another novel called Kit Brandon. And it's based on this um, semi-famous uh, female moonshiner at the time that was running around, and um, and so he created this kind of image of her, and you know she liked cars and she liked nice clothes, uh, you know. And um, anyway, it, and the idea of being because I know that that this is this is where it gets you know slightly postmodern maybe, but I know that Anderson when he was investigating the the Bondurants and the Great Moonshine Conspiracy in 1935. Right after that, he writes this Kit Brandon novel. That Kit Brandon novel was clearly inspired by many. There's incidents in that novel that are kind of like the Bonnets. So my thing was like, what if this Kit Brandon character was modeled in part after this character Maggie? So I kind of took a fictional person, you know, and, and brought it backwards into this. So the idea being that these are the kinds of games I like to play. They entertain me, pretty much nobody else. But that if you um, if you had read Kit Brandon, for example, or if you knew anything about Sherwood Anderson, and then you read this novel, you would what I've done is provided like a backstory for his not, you know, that kind of thing, and and, and so that that kind of helped um, create her um, because you know there, none of these guys had letters, there's no diaries, there's no I had very little to go on. It was like uh, court transcripts and a couple newspaper clippings, and then um, you know, I, whatever old timers that are still around, like my father. But of course, you know, when he was born, nineteen thirty-two, so you know, nobody. Um, so so you know, there wasn't much to go on. Very little to go on. Was there anything to go on then? Kind of as how the tensions increase between the law and the brothers. Was that something that was in the court transcripts or was that something too that you were kind of going off of what you did have to in order to create the story? Yeah, th- th- there was a little bit of both. There was some developing tensions between the Bonrat family. The, the, the court transcripts make it clear that 
there, it, it was a, basically centered around these notions of granny fees or bribes that were paid and that people were paying bribes and the bond runs were not. And that was a that was a thorn in the side of the local law enforcement. And it has a lot to do with the Commonwealth attorney uh, man named Lee that they changed his name because the Lee family in Virginia, they changed his name in the film because Lee family in Virginia is a very old um, sort of powerful family, and they uh, they actually threatened legal action. Um, so, um, but everybody knew uh, that that Lee, uh, Commonwealth Attorney Lee, was he, you know he 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 was the trial in '35 was um, uh, they were prosecuting him. Um, that's one of the great ironies for for racketeering and all this stuff. You know that he had set up this big scheme, and a lot of the irony is a lot of these bootleggers and moonshiners, like my grandfather and his brothers, were were testifying against him. Um, of course, because, you know, he was who he was, he got off and, you know, he was acquitted. Um, but everybody knew that he was the, um, you know, that he was the sort of mastermind of this racketeering scheme or basically, you know, basically he, there was all this moonshine being made in, in, in the County and all over the place. And the cops knew about it. And like they represent in the early parts of the film where they're delivering to the police and the police, so, you know, and that comes from a variety of, of, of known things going on at the time, of Franklin County, some historical record. Also my own father remembers being a young boy and driving with his father and they would make deliveries like a, like, like a milk truck. They, he would run a jar up and put it on the doorstep. I mean, it was, it was in the open and whatever, and everybody was doing fine. Everybody's making a little money. Um, and so Lee comes in, Carter Lee, Commonwealth attorney, Carter Lee comes in basically and says, you know, sees an opportunity. He says, you know, you, oh, you're going to pay 20 bucks for every load or whatever. Um, and we're going to institute this countywide and get everybody in the same system. And what I'm going to, you know, it, yeah. So it's a classic kind of racketeering scheme. And, um, the Bondurants didn't want to go along with it, and there's um, examples in the court transcripts of other other players, other people, other guys um, who had you know interactions, altercations, who were sort of forced into it. Um, the bond, they're, 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 there's threats being uh, they're threatening the Bondurants on a couple different occasions, things like that, um, and then it seems to culminate in this shooting now. So, so for example, there are scenes like the, the the main scene where where Charlie Rake shows up at the at the the store the first time, and him and him and Forrest have this sort of stare down and that kind of that that's a that's a wholly fabricated scene um, that I'm trying to kind of convey what was probably a, a, a you know a longer um, more subtle set of, of circumstances that that led to them. Um, at odds with each other, but it was it was certainly clear the historical record that 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 the Bondurants didn't want to pay or refused to, and they felt they were kind of above this. You know, they 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 didn't you know they, they didn't uh, want to be controlled in this way. And um, in that December 1930, basically everybody else was playing along except them, and that's when they decided that they had to be you know put down. And, uh, you know, one of the things I suggest is, you know, the Charlie Rakes, one of the things that irritates him is that the Bondurants have this kind of reputation, um, which is clear in the court, tr- court transcripts, um, that people were afraid of them. That helped, again, help me create the characters, but people were clearly afraid of the Bondurants, especially Forrest. And so, I, you know, it got me thinking, well, what, you know, you're a sheriff's deputy, you're supposed to be the, the big man around the, the county and you're the law here and you've got this group of guys that feel they're above the law and everybody's talking about how they, you know, they're so tough, they can't be a force, can't be killed. 
on that starts to work on you a little bit. You get a little pissed off about that. And then, and then, for example, there's a book, there's a scene where at a sawmill, because they, the Bonners did run a sawmill too, is, um, where uh, Charlie Rakes shows up there um, and basically gets kind of humiliated, you know, by Forrest. And that sort of helped build that tension. And I think, you know, maybe that's one of the reasons why, too, they switched it to the, the Guy Pierce sort of Chicago character because they needed to get to that quicker. They couldn't have these little, like, incidents. They needed to bring a guy in who was immediately at odds with Forrest, you know, so. Maggie was also apparently from Chicago in the movie as well as Charlie Rakes. And um, they they kind of mentioned this almost connection between Franklin and Chicago, which seems kind of odd to me that it's like 800 and some miles away. Was that completely fabricated? Or it sounds like a lot of it was really just more local. Yeah, it, yeah. Maggie was local. Yeah, it, in Franklin County, it was majority local. The, the connection is, I think, the connection is like Hillcote in particular was fascinated with um, the, our classic ideas about the Prohibition period and you know uh, Capone and and rum running and and that sort of angle of illegal spirits and stuff. And then there's this. Appalachian style. And, um, and so he wanted to contrast those two sort of, you know, cause, cause everybody's familiar with the Capone, Chicago prohibition gangsters and all that. And I think what he was, he thought was cool was that, Oh, you have this Appalachian style gangsters. And what if the two met, you know, like what would be the clash between them? But, but, but it is true though, that, that, the, the amount of liquor that was being produced in Franklin County and some other areas of Appalachia, you know, was being transported to major cities. It was going to other cities. So these guys would have, you know, bootleggers in particular, transport people would have interactions with um, city folk. And, and and there are numerous uh, stories, anecdotes and things that I've read in, in, in various accounts of, um, you know, guys in, in long coats, city people clearly showing up with a fleet of cars, you know, in Franklin County. And, you know, mysteriously driving out in the middle of the night, you know, so, I mean, they're obviously coming in and picking up liquor. So that, there was dealings certainly between them. And I think that's one of the things that I explored in the book that, you know, and it's it's somewhat in the movie that what it, it went, you know, prohibition caused this to go, caused the, the making of moonshine really to go from a a much more local tradition based activity, you know, um, into a money making machine. You know, it, it's kind of like. It, you know, you could equate it to some contemporary, you know, drug uh, you know, enterprises, you know, or something like that, like as the, the creation of methamphetamine or something. I don't know, whatever. And, and it like explodes and it becomes really popular. It's cheap, easy to make. So it was like that kind of thing. And so that that was an interesting transformation to, for me, too, because I was trying to figure out why would the Bunnerets be so like what was their and, it, you know, it's because they had this long tradition of doing it this way. And nobody messed with them, and that's the way they liked it. And you know, and so this outside influence was very, you know, bothersome and all that. And and I think the movie in particular really wanted to play up on that because that always that always plays well dramatically. The um, outsider coming in trying to change the ways of the of the regular folks, kind of stuff, you know. So yeah, definitely. And I think th that scene where the the two guys from Chicago, you know, kind of the outsiders coming in and the scene with, with Forrest, uh, where they cut his throat, that was just, yep. I mean, that was wow. And then it just kind of escalates from there. You know, you have tar and feathering and, and eventually killing, you know, uh, cricket. And was that kind of back and forth? Was that something that actually 
happened. I mean, maybe not from outside characters, uh, but even with Charlie being local. Yeah. Or was that kind of played up for the film? Those events um, occurred, um, but they they're either either we don't really know who did it or it's it's most likely it was between factions uh competing factions um syndicates maybe you know like so there'd be a sort of a franklin county syndicate and then there'd be something in floyd neighboring counties would have their syndicates and then uh, even west virginia and so sometimes people would try to kind of come in and muscle each other out but um by 1930 the the sheriff's department under the direction of Carter Lee is starting to kind of muscle people and, and push people around. Now the, um, um, there's a few notable examples, for example, in, in 1935, like when, before Carter Lee went to trial, um, Charlie Rakes died, uh, very suspiciously right before the trial, along with, um, a couple other guys that, um, this guy, Henry Abshire, who's kind of in the book and he's kind of Carter Lee, uh, he's, he's kind of, uh, Charlie Rakes is, partner that they cut him out entirely but he was um he transporting a prisoner in the middle of the night and he got shot to death in like a hail of bullets like 20 bullets you know killed him and the prisoner he was transporting uh, um like literally days before the trial and these are the guys that would have testified against you know damning testimony against carter so the, the point is is that carter lee was clearly willing to use you know force excessive force to get these things done so we have some evidence of of of, of him doing that but we also have a little bit of evidence him pushing people around and then we also have the warring factions um like for example force getting his throat cut we don't nobody knows who did that there was not a there was not enough there was, nobody was arrested for it um and the 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 conjecture was back then and remains that it was a like a right either a rival gang uh, you know like a group of guys that were like uh, we want to take over this business or that they had come to you know effectively rob the place you know come in and steal his booze and his money because they knew that that what this restaurant his way station um and they do that in the in the in the movie they show him kind of hiding his money in the walls little compartment you know he's kind of very careful because um, that way station would, you know, when when the shipments were coming through, he might have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars, um, a lot of money for that time. And so people would come and um, then there's also some conjecture that he, he he that he got his throat cut just in an altercation. You know, he just kind of, they, they got in a fight, but it was out in the parking lot. It's a couple guys. Um, and then there's the whole, you know, walking to the uh, hospital bit, which is. Um, what they say in the newspaper, you know, that's what he said he did. That's what he, that's all they know. He showed up at the hospital. Well, how'd you get here? I walked, you know, and it was like 10 miles, you know, it was a crazy distance. doesn't really make sense to me. Um, that helped you know, obviously develop the kind of legend. And, but one of the things that I wanted to do, which is the movie it's in the book and it's also in the movie was, you know, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a, a realist and, 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 you know, the, the idea of him walking, you know, walking, holding your neck together, or whatever, for losing that much blood for 10 miles in the snow, just not real plausible. So something else happened there. And, um, so I had put on the idea, you know, what if it was, what if it was Maggie, you know, what if, what if she saved, basically saved them, but he didn't know it. And so he goes on living this, um, you know, living this persona, um, and then there's a pivotal moment where, where, you know, he, she tells him because she's trying to stop him from 
putting himself in danger again and again, you know, and you know, I, I'm the one that saved you. You think you're indestructible, but you're not, you know, it was, it was me. And then of course he's like, wait, you were there. If you were there, those guys were there. What happened to you? You know, that, um, that is all that that's a fabrication of my own. But, but, but what I was trying to do with the, with the, it's kind of like the Charlie Riggs thing. I'm trying to pre- present a plausible scenario of how that might've happened, you know, um, and, and make it as kind of realistic as possible because, you know, him just, him just walking 10 miles doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned Charlie Rakes uh, apparently didn't die in that shootout, but you had mentioned earlier that your grandfather and Forrest did get shot there. Yeah. Was that, was that shootout fairly accurately um, depicted yeah. then other than Charlie Rakes? <laughs> Shoot, no, the shootout was, was, was certainly one of the scenes that was, um, let's say amplified and exaggerated quite a bit. In a real shootout, there's only a couple shots. I mean, basically in the real shootout, it was he shot Jack and then he shot Forrest, you know, and Forrest ran towards him. He shot Forrest and then Howard was standing there and he was going to shoot Howard, but one of his fellow deputies, Henry Abshire, knocked his hand down and the gun like discharged into the snow. So he was going to one, two, three, you know, he was going to kill the three brothers. Um, and that was it. Um, that was that was all. Now, the that that incident um, that incident kind of brought the whole thing tumbling down because there were all these there were like um, state and federal people involved by this point. So when this shooting incident occurred, that everybody started paying attention to it, looking at it and like, wait a minute, how, why is this guy executing people? Um, and so that brought the whole scheme down, you know what I mean? So, it, so that, that, that did kind of finish the Carter Lee and his whole scheme, but no, not like that. Um, and, um, that Charlie Rakes, Charlie Rakes died, uh, a couple of years later, right before the testimony, as I was saying, and it was unusual. He, um, he developed pneumonia and died in like a day, you know, just wow. like, like within one day, it was really weird. And so in the book, um, I, 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 I sort of suggest that, that, that maybe Howard and, and, and his brothers had something to do with that. Um, <clears throat> in the book, they, they, they find Howard finds them and, you know, and cause Howard wants revenge cause Howard, you know, showed up late, he watches his two brothers get shot by this man, you know? Um, so he's angry. So he takes revenge on him <clears throat> And in the book, uh, I try to create again a plausible scenario and how Howard might have done something to him that caused him to get this like drastic pneumonia that killed him the next day, whatever. Um, but you know, but the but the but the film, they you know, you need a bigger you need a bigger shootout at the end. You need all that <laughs> stuff. And they and, and this time they had a uh, they had uh, uh, Jack, you know, sh- showing up early and all uh, you know upset and ready to kill Rakes. You know, he's mad about the cricket pate murder kind of thing. Um, so that's all that, that, that's all them at that point. And then the way that, uh, just a hail of bullets, there's a lot of shooting, you know, there's lots of shooting and there wasn't, there wasn't all that shooting. So that, that is like probably the farthest from the historical record, you know, other than like, uh, Charlie race, not being from Chicago, just the way that whole thing played out that, um, you know, um, 
I mean, Forrest gets shot like five times, right? You know, yeah, yeah, it was, it was quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, but, you know, that's that's filmmaking. That's what they did. You know, and, and I talked to Hillcoat about it. He's like, you know, we need a bigger, we got to make a bigger thing. And so I understood that. And So on the flip side of that, were there any parts that you saw in the movie where they're like, wow, they really nailed that? They did, did get it? The historical record or, yeah. Um, Just as far as the accuracy, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they, I think they, I think they did a good job of sort of presenting um, the the in, in the environs of Franklin County and looked pretty good and all that. Um, the, you saw bits about how uh, the Great Depression was, you know, people were out of work and coming into, you know, come riding the rails, coming into town. Uh, there's little clips here and there that kind of help suggest that, uh, I thought it was interesting the way they, 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 they hand, they handled the racial disparity of Franklin County, which is unusual because there were black families there, not many farmers, the next door neighbors, uh, of my my father my father's next door neighbors was was a black family the, the DeShazos and 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 um, the way that they played because they're delivering the liquor to him which is a scene that I have in the book um, seems seems to be an appropriate characterization of the kinds of relationship they had I mean because my my father used to play with those kids and they they were friend they were quite friendly however. That, that that the members of that that family would never like come inside and eat at the dinner table with them. You know what I mean? It was like that kind of. Um, so I thought that was pretty well done, and I think the the, the way the, the the way that uh, the 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 automobile how the automobile was becoming a big deal, Jack and his fondness for that. Jack's fondness for for rich uh, sort of nice things that was a motivating factor that I know my my father told me that um, that his father my grandfather told him once that you know during the depression there was like this pair of boots in a um, in a window of a store and it cost two dollars and like all he could think about is if he just had two dollars he would get these boots like there was like a big deal to him you know and even later on in life he 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 was a guy that liked nice things I mean. Not, he wasn't like flashy, you know, I and mean, these are nice things in like an Appalachian way, you know, like a nice, <laughs> like a nice pair of boots. <laughs> yeah. It's not, a, yeah, it's not a, um, so there were, there were elements like that, that I thought they did a really good job with the, um, the sort of filling station store that they put together. That was a big part of the set. I thought that was remarkably, I was able to go on set for that. And I was visiting the set and hung around that building for a couple of days with, with my father actually. And that was beautifully done. I mean, the historical detail of that place was really cool. Um, my dad was amazed. He was just wandering around, and like the um, those those old cars. I mean, the cars were were amazing. They had, you know, that was really beautifully done. Um, the old ordered uh, Baptist church um, that that Bertha, you know, um, Jack's love interest. Which is all. Yeah, that's all true. My grandmother was a, raised a, a Dunkard. They call him, you know, old order. Baptist, German Baptist, and um, the uh, the kinds of um, you know I researched about the kinds of um, ceremonies they had and the, what their service was like, for example, and the singing and the feet washing. You know, that's all something they did. Um, um, and and that's one of the cool one mm-hmm. of the really cool things early on was you know you have this notorious when I started researching this for a novel you know many years ago is you have this the Bonnerant brothers the most sort of notorious group of villains in Franklin County. And then you have 
you know, literally the preacher's daughter, you know, and, 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 and in 1930, they are, they are dating, like they, they get married like the next year. And my father's born in 32, my father, the oldest child. So, I mean, like all of this is happening in the midst of their courtship. And I, and I was like, that's fascinating to me. How does that even happen? Like, how do you even get to, you know, get together, get to know each other? And then, um, and it, it's a, you know, it's a classic kind of Romeo and Juliet thing. You know, these families, um, couldn't be more different. So that was, a, and I like the way that they worked with that. Um, um, it kept a lot of the scene, you know, and then there's scenes, there's scenes in the, there's, there's several scenes that they played really straight from the book, um, which I was very happy about, but, um, but those weren't necessarily the most historically accurate, for example, like, you know, one of my favorite scenes in the book is when, is when Jessica Chastain confronts him with, the idea of, you know, that she drove him to the hospital that night and that, you know, she, and the suggestion is that those guys did something to her. And she has that line about, you know, none of them ever did anything to me. And it's kind of emotional moment. Like that is, that, that's exactly verbatim from the book, which is really, uh, uh, which is great. You know, I'm glad they did that. And that's one of my favorite scenes. So, um, you know, it was, it, it a pretty good mix. You know, Hillcoat early on said that they wanted to retain as much historical accuracy as possible. You know, we, we're, we're going to change some of these things. We're going to do some of these things in the interest of dramatic tension. But, we, you know, and, and, I, and, I, and in that way, I think his aims were very similar to mine. Um, to, to, keep, you know, to keep the story true, um, if not in a historical sense, then in a plausibility sense, that these kinds of things did happen, at least to other people, could happen or likely happened. Um, but, you know, but you have to imagine scenes and dialogue and all that stuff because there's no record of these things. And I, and I think that Hilka did the same, same kind of thing. Um, and, you know, and, and in the end overall, uh, I, I'm, I'm really happy with it. You know, I mean, even the Charlie Rakes sort of transformation to a Chicago gangster. I mean, I, I, I love what, you know, what Guy Pierce did with it. That's a crazy character. And Guy Pierce is one of my favorite actors and all that. And so, um, and I, but I understand why they did it. You know, it makes sense because trying to do a more, local Charlie Rakes, a much more nuanced, slower build, you know, all that stuff. It'd be hard to do that in a film, you know, in a two hour film. So. Yeah, for sure. Now afterwards at the kind of at the end, after the shootout, everybody kind of ends up happy. Mm -hmm. I know you had mentioned Bertha with, with Jack and, and Forrest marrying Maggie and Howard gets married. Was that kind of the way things ended? Was that pretty accurate as well? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was, I mean, yeah. And, one of the, one of the notable things, obviously Jack got married and, uh, my father was born in 32. So, you know, when that, there's that boy that sits on Jack's lap and towards the end, that's supposed to be my father, you know, and they had six kids and Howard also had a bunch of kids. Forrest never had any kids, but him and him and Maggie lived together. Um, that's all true. There's a couple things going on in one sense that the, the Bondurants after that, really never again became anything like they were like the Bonnerant boys kind of stuff was not. That being said, my grandfather was arrested for moonshine a couple times after that later. Um, he actually went to jail three different times um, for a year each time. The last time my dad was in high school. Um, that was like small, you know, that was much, much more small time. I mean, it was a way to make extra money, but it wasn't, it wasn't like, it wasn't like it was before. But by the time my, my, my dad was in, in high school or, you know, that, that last time, 
um, it's it's hard to explain, but even though he was he was caught and, and and served time there, he was still seen as a sort of upstanding member of the community. You know, I mean, like the, there wasn't all the violence anymore. People were people were still making you know obviously making and selling some liquor, and if you got caught by the revenue service or the local sheriffs, whatever, and you weren't able to bribe them off or whatever, um, that wasn't looked upon as some kind of terrible crime. You know, what I mean, it was so common that. It, there wasn't there wasn't much like a, a social stigma attached to it. So he was still an upstanding member of the community. And after that, um, you know, by the time say like the 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 fifties and sixties come around, Bonrats are out of the business, except in maybe very small private things, as far as making goes, making liquor. And um, and so you know. It, it's that that it's it's sort of a it's a part of our past but it's um you know howard went on to be a family man and all this kind of stuff and um forrest was you know forrest was still involved you know he, had, he stole this shop and he still got involved in a few things here and there but it was never like it was before now also <clears throat> i the, there's a scene in the book that's a lot like the scene at the end and one of the th one of the th one of the reasons why i did it that way I, I sort of view that scene at the end as kind of a compression of like the next 20 years where they kind of get themselves out of this crime business and they've sort of, they become normal people and this is uh, you know all this kind of stuff they start having kids and you kind of compress it into one day to kind of demonstrate all those things and and part of it also was what was well and i fully admit was that you know this is my own family i'm talking about here and my father um you know, I, I, I didn't, I didn't want, I wanted to, I wanted to show that, that the Bonnerons ultimately became, you know, responsible citizens and not, and, and that didn't go on. So, um, I wanted to, I wanted to end the book. Um, and, and I'm glad they did the movie too, on that kind of upbeat, that sort of high note. Um, that was important for me. It was important for, my relatives to see it, you know, my, my uncles and aunts and, uh, my father and, um, you know, I, I, I couldn't end the thing with them still being criminals, you know what I mean? And so that was a kind of a compression of really a journey to respectability that took place over a decade or two, you know, and, uh, and like I said, by, by the fifties and sixties, um, they were all just farming, doing normal stuff, you know, it was, all that was gone. Was there anything in the book that uh, didn't make it into the movie that was like maybe one of your favorite stories to give people kind of a peek into stuff that's in the book that if they read the book, they wouldn't be able to see in the movie? Yeah. Well, the, the whole Sherwood, Anson, Sherwood Anderson storyline, I mean, if, if, you know, and if, if people are not familiar with Sherwood Anderson, I think, I think they'll enjoy it. And, and if you, but if you are familiar with Sherwood Anderson, I think it's really kind of special. It's one of the things I'm most proud of the way that I was able to work him into the book. It, because when I started researching and I found out that Sherwood Anderson was actually there and roaming around Franklin County, putting together this article that he did, um, and then reading Kit Brandon, which is clearly based on some parts of it, um, Sherwood Anderson's one of my literary heroes. I mean, he's arguably the most important prose stylist of uh, 20th century American fiction. I mean, he's the guy that taught Hemingway and Faulkner how to write. They, they, you know. So, uh, and his book, Winesburg, Ohio, is, um, you know, has to be considered one of the top 10 most important books in American literature in the, 20, in the 20th century, certainly, perhaps in all, of all time, because it created a, 
a style and a kind of a template or organizational method, all kinds of things that became very distinctly American that you see borne out in Hemingway and Faulkner and then by extension, you know, people like Fitzgerald or Flannery O'Connor, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so vital, vitally important, but also because that book was so large and then the books preceding that, his career after that slowly sort of kind of diminished, his books be, um, became less popular and critically panned. And so his, his is a sort of unique American uh, tragedy of uh, a rise to fame and then a sort of slow descent. And, he, and, then he, and so he, by this time in 35, he's struggling, you know, he's struggling already. Um, Faulkner and Hemingway's are their stars ascended and ascendant. And they both, by this point also, they've, um, they basically pushed him aside. You know, they basically kind of like, eh. and, um, he was, his books, a couple of his books were kind of like, were laughed at, um, um, Hemingway in the torrents of spring, um, mocked him openly, you know, like he had, he had a couple of humiliating es, es, episodes. And so you had this kind of broken down man. And so it's, it's, it makes for a great sort of foil to these, these Bonner brothers and that he's trying to find out what's going on. And he's having trouble breaking through the kind of, uh, bubble of silence that, that, that persists in places like Franklin County. And it's still a very quiet place. And people don't talk about it. People don't talk about Minchon. You don't talk about it. Nobody talks about it. That's why it was really hard. There's no stories. There's nothing written down or anything because nobody talked about it. Um, and I, th I think that whole element adds a really nice layer to the story because it provides you with a, with a kind of an outsider perspective. You know, somebody that's from outside the community coming in. And so the observation he makes, I think, are really interesting for a reader who's not familiar with, you know, that area or something like that. And he's also able to provide uh, a more of a historical perspective. You know, a, he was a world-traveled guy. And so things like the Depression and what's going on, stock market, for example, things like that, which, you know, barely made much of a ripple in places like Franklin County. My dad, you know, my dad said they were poor before the Depression, they were poor during the Depression, they were poor after the Depression. Not much changed. So um, that whole that whole element, which is about a third of the book, you know, I think adds a lot of interesting context. Uh, um, and, and, it's, and in particular, his pursuance of Maggie, which is, as I said earlier, is like he, he was he was thinking about her as a character to use in his next novel. So as he's following Maggie around trying to get, you know, trying to figure out, trying to figure her out. Um, also in the book, you know, there's a lot more um, about Howard. Howard in the film gets very little time. Um, Jason Clark's a great actor. I liked, I liked him. I liked, uh, he, he, he's also the one that, that he looks very much like a lot of, our, he looked like a Bonnerant in a lot of ways. I mean, he, he could, he, yeah. Um, but they didn't give him a whole lot to work with in the, in the, in the book. Howard has, you know, just about equal treatment as Forrest and Jack. And he has a whole backstory. He has a whole story of how he came to be the person that he is. And, and I found that really fascinating. He's one of my, he's probably my favorite guy just because his story is so particularly interesting and tragic to me. And they left, you know, that's all, that's all out. So I think that, that any reader of the book is going to get, um, a, a fuller appreciation of, of, of all the characters, but in particular, somebody like Howard, I think, um, and then, like we mentioned, the Charlie Rake stuff, uh, stuff like that. There's also Maggie gets more. I mean, you know, Maggie, they, 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 you know, they rush her. They, she shows up. She's involved, you know, and then there's, there's like all the stuff happening. Whereas in the book, it's a more gradual 
um, even like the kind of uh, awkward courtship of, of Maggie and, and, uh, and Forrest. Now, the, the courtship between Bertha and Jack, they did keep a lot of those scenes, uh, which is great. I mean, that, that's a, like when, when like the church scene when she washes his feet and he runs off all drunk. And then the, the one where they, they drive the car out into the field and he gives her that dress and stuff like that. That's all in the book. And, and obviously that's, that's the main love interest. So they wanted to keep that in. And, and I'm glad they did. But. Yeah, well, it sounds like there's a lot in the book that even if you've seen the movie, there's still going to be a lot more. So I guess my final question would be, where can people get the book? Uh, you can still get it anywhere. It's um, it's available, you know, it's on Amazon. It's in most bookstores around the country. Certainly available online. It's um, it's 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 managed to continue to to sell well um, over the years. I think it's you know, I think obviously the bit that the movie has a lot had a lot to do with that, and the based on a true story aspect. Um, a lot of people find that it's a uh, it's funny that the sales always really tick up on around Father's Day. Like it's apparently it's a big it's a it's a good gift to give to your older dad or something, you know what I mean? Cause like, it's the kind of book that he'll read and like, cause there's like, there's some fighting and shooting and liquor in it, but you know, uh, fine by me. That's cool. So no, it, it's the what is counting the world. And, and then of course there's a version called lawless too, which is the exact same book. They just, they just have the title lawless. Like, you know, they, they couldn't do what is counting the world for the film because, um, and the main it's it's kind of long and awkward um it also sounds like the pornographic version of the right i mean that's the funny thing is you could have the porno version of the book and we don't have to change the name it's the same but but the um the big deal they told me was that the wettest like w the idea of wet versus dry counties is something that's not understood internationally in the international market mm -hmm. as you probably know is a big deal you know they got to be able to sell mm -hmm. this in europe and so and like so wet that you know the, the, the people would be very confused by this idea of a wettest county um which is something we we understand as Americans. So like they um, they, they they came up with uh, with with Lawless. Um, they actually bar they actually somebody else was going to have a movie called Lawless, and he gave him the the title. I forget who it was. I was a famous director. It's in my mind now. Um, anyway, but yeah, so Lawless, you know, <laughs> and they, they, they then they say, well, do, do, do you want to do a we're going to do a, a copy of the book and we're going to call it Lawless and is that all right? Okay, sure, I guess, you know, and um, so there's some of those, those, some of those are out there too. But yeah, no, you can get anywhere and especially Amazon. Sounds great. I'll make sure to include links to that in the show notes. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time, Matt. Sure. Glad to do it. Thank you. Once again, I would like to thank Matt Bondurant for taking the time to come onto the show and give us a peek into the true story behind the movie, if you want to dig deeper into that story, I would really recommend picking up Matt's book, The Wettest County in the World. And while that's the only book of Matt's that the movie Lawless is based on, it's not the only book that Matt has written. His most recent book is called The Night Swimmer, and if you like the movie Lawless, I bet you'll like his other books as well. You can find the links to pick up his books in the show notes for this episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Okay. Now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Forrest Bondurant did survive having his throat cut. Number two, Charlie Rakes was not actually from Chicago. Number three, 
Jack Bondurant was not shot in the big shootout at the end of the movie. Did you find out which one is a lie? The lie is number three. While we learned the big shootout at the end of the movie wasn't really that accurate with what really happened, it did show that Jack and Forrest got shot, which did happen. What did you think about today's episode? If you enjoyed it and would like to hear more interviews, let me know. You can find me hanging out in the Based on a True Story Facebook group. You can also follow the show on Instagram, where it's at Based on a True Story Podcast. Over there, I like to post some photos of the faces and places behind each episode. You can also find me on Twitter, where I'm at Dan Lefeb, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. Or if social media isn't your thing, you can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at dan at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon. <laughs>